All righty. Hello, one. Hello, all. Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. Hello, dog. Hello, cat. Hello, friend. Hello, foe. Hey, friend. Hello, right. Hello, wrong. How's it going? Good. Okay, they are now plugged in, and uh, we're all set. So, uh, what's on your radar lately? Uh, did you see? I'm just watching this Project Veritas video. Did you see this? Uh, I haven't seen it yet. No, I've heard chatter about it, but you know, sometimes it's not clear whether it's worth even investing the small amount of mental resources necessary to figure out what's going on with Project Veritas. On occasion, it can be, but sometimes it's not. But, so what's the deal with it? Whether it was worth it or not, I don't know. Uh, but I did uh, invest, you know, 10, 15 minutes to watch the video and then the video that came after it. And, like, they have this guy who's, like, the head of something at, at Pfizer. I don't know. Like, doesn't see – I don't know if he's that important or not. But he's just talking about, like, they're going to they're gonna try to create the COVID vaccine and they're going to uh, – they're going to try to um, breed it. To try be, to create like, it. Not gain them. To basically, um, they're trying to do evolution in the lab. Uh, uh, it's called, uh, uh, yeah, what is it called? Something evolution, uh, forced evolution, or something like that. So basically, they give it to monkeys, and then they breed the other monkeys. They, uh, they, you know, they try to get it to the other monkeys, and they, they try to uh, uh, basically foresee um, in which direction evolution is going to go in order to make vaccine. Now that's the claim of the guy, but then later. Uh, uh, like I don't even really like, understand what that means, but go ahead. Okay, so you know how like gain of function research, you like screw with the yeah, genome. Yeah, yeah. For, like this is like doing it, but like naturally, like forced evolution. So like, with the with the vaccine as it's currently constituted now. So like this wasn't several years ago while the vaccine was in development. It's no, the point the point is they want using to do current now like M- mRNA technology. They want to do this. Uh, this guy claims they want to do this now in order to see which ways okay. the disease is going to evolve, so they can right. have vaccines, so they can make vaccines, right? Uh, for the for the future strains of the virus, right. and uh, uh, I don't know I don't know if this is a good idea or not. But then they confront the guy later. So like a, a follow up video, like James O'Keefe like confronts the guy, and the guy just claims that he was like he freaks out. I mean it's crazy. Like you know he's like he's going crazy through the restaurant, and he claims um, you know that he was just trying to impress someone on a date. And it seems like it's like it's, like it's not even true what he was saying. So it's funny they posted this thing where their only source for their story is the guy says he was trying to oppress someone on a, on a third date. And, you know, this is sort of what they do. They find that was a, Well, I mean, <laughs> so the scam went so far as that a girl went on No, it was a gay guy. It was a gay guy. guy. No, it was oh, a gay okay. guy. Always it's girls talking to these people. So I'm like, why is it a guy? Yeah, it's usually girls who, like, they, who, these, like, who these oblivious older guys like, let into their uh, sphere of yeah, uh, intimacy. Is, yeah, so these, you know, these guys will tell girls anything. Like, oh, you work for CNN? You guys were really out to get Trump, huh? And the girl will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever you want me to say. <laughs> yeah. and so, and Screw so that guy. guy. Screw Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so this guy, and so this guy is like for working for Pfizer, and so he's a gay guy. So it's like a, it's like a man this time. So I'm like, oh wait, it's a man. I thought that, I thought what they do is they get girls, but it makes sense now because when they confronted the guy, he's like, I was on a date, and I was trying to impress this guy. Um, is it and, plausible? Uh, I mean, is it plausible that maybe he was just kind of doing some, I don't know, informed conjecture about what might be possible, or is the most uh, says, widespread he, interpretation he that's it, like also the most damning one in that, like you know, he doesn't like even, hiding these he sinister methods. He, he doesn't even clearly say in the video that they're doing this. He he says like somebody brought it up in a meeting, basically. 
Uh, like, so, so it's hard to ask a dumb question, but let's say they are doing it. Why exactly should I be appalled at that? I mean, maybe I should be, but I don't. I think it's supposed to automatically be, understand why. I, I think it's supposed to be. This is what they're saying on. Uh, uh, this is what Project Veritas is saying. Now I don't know if they're scientifically right, but they had like Robert Malone uh, commenting on the video, and he's just he's not a credible person. But you know, putting that aside, uh, their basic their idea is basically wait. Like, so you're, you saying, know, you're saying Malone is like under no circumstances at all credible on, a, on any topic? Like I know who he is. I've heard some. Uh, of he, well, he's he's crazy. I don't know. I haven't looked at his. I looked. I haven't looked at his views on every topic. But like he's sharing like screenshots from like fake websites saying that uh, the old CEO of Twitter just got busted for child porn. And saying, "Oh, is this true? What? I don't know if this is." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's crazy. So, yeah. Oh, and then Elon swooped in and saved the day, and well, something. Yeah, he's, so he's like child you know, he porn finally have, from the Twitter. He doesn't where, have the, the Twitter, whereas like child pornography had been harbored and uh, allowed before. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's you know a lot of signs this person's crazy, but forget uh, Robert Malone. Um, yeah. Uh, what they, uh, I think, what they, what they want to say is it's like gain of function issues. So you're making the disease you're through evolution through more natural. Uh, uh, methods. You're making the uh, disease more virulent, and that could potentially be dangerous. That's the goal. And there's always also this stuff that they want, you know, that's the stuff that's like, I don't know if that's like a good argument or not, but that's the thing that sort of makes sense. The other thing is like, oh, you know, he admits that like, you know, Pfizer makes a lot of money off of COVID. I'm like, oh my god, like that's just like such a, you know, shocking, shocking admission, and they, they, they play that up a lot. Well, I mean, uh, I do, I'm not gonna just, uh, peremptorily dismiss the value of receiving insight into the candid, unguarded statements of like a high-ranking corporate official at a massive, you know, politically influential company like Pfizer. Um, I don't know what role, what position this guy had, but, you know, assuming he's like, let's say on the upper ranks of the corporate ladder, you know, there can be some, I mean, there likely could be some, uh, Utility in sort of eliciting uh, unguarded, again, sort of candid statements that you wouldn't get if it was just in a typical public venue from that person. Uh, because, you know, these corporations in particular are so drenched in just PR speak and like multiple layers of impermeable jargon on everything they say and do. And like everything's market tested that if you could just get like, a moment of honesty, even if it doesn't necessarily like, like reflect the true all-encompassing nature or like, like what they're up to scientifically, then I think, uh, you know, there's something potentially worthwhile in that. But I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll take a look at it. Um, yeah. Well, it's not, it's not clear. I mean, I wanted to do a little more. It's not clear how uh, important this guy was. Like when, when they confronted him, he goes, you know, I have no science background. I'm just a consultant. That's what he says when they confront him. Um, and so that's what he says. So it's, it's not even a dispute how, how important he is. Yeah, I'm trying to look at what his title is. It says director. Here's so, a, well, Newsweek, they wouldn't, sh- I mean, Project Veritas. Pfizer director sure, but... of research and development. So, I mean, that, you know, you could see wanting to get that person to make sort of non-PR tested statements about the nature of internal corporate affairs and that being like something potentially journalistically worthwhile. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not completely, uh, uh, I'm not dismissing all parts of it. I, I think that, you know, this, this stuff is some stuff that could potentially, uh, be concerning. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot concerning with how they, how they do this supposed journalism. And there too. was, there was a, ver- there was a, uh, installation of the Twitter files recently that actually Lee, uh, Lee Fong did where he had 
emails showing that um, Pfizer had uh, basically intervened to demand that certain people get banned from Twitter if they used a certain hashtag. And these people, and these were even these weren't even the most sort of out there anti-vaccine, you know, conspiracy crowd types. I mean, they, they, they intervened to get Twitter to take disciplinary action against people who just use a certain hashtag demanding um, the kind of revocation of the, the patent that allowed Pfizer to have like exclusive control of the uh, formula for the vaccine and to, you know, basically to universalize the access to the vaccine. So these people might have even been pro-vaccine in that they just wanted to sort of... Uh, Reduce the really? so corporate Pfizer, monopoly. Pfizer, there. Pfizer, yeah. What was the what, 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 what did Pfizer say that they were uh, the justification for this? How they ask? Uh, they were they were basically just in communication with Twitter officials, requesting that certain accounts. I mean, maybe I don't know if they asked for certain accounts to be taken down, but they said that you know they they gave like a heads up for them to be on the lookout for use of a certain hashtag. Which is like ridiculous. Why are people employed by Pfizer who have enough time on their hands to be like micro monitoring Twitter? I mean, if you have the manpower to do that, then maybe like there's some organizational bloat in your uh, system that you might want to address first, rather than worrying about like some guy who uh, who uses a hashtag. I mean, that's that's literally what ended up being pursued. It was guys with. Who are using hashtags? I don't. I don't. I'm well, not sure. I don't think, I, to, I don't think it's. I, no, I don't think it's ridiculous that if they email Twitter. I'm like, okay, I don't know what this what this was, but if there's stuff that's like not true that's being said, right? You know, I think they have the. You know, I think it would be a good use of their time too, and it would. You know, it would be within their right to email Twitter and say this is not. You know, this is not cool. Okay, here. Sorry, sorry. Let, let me let me clarify. You can, and this is the January 16th Twitter files thread by Lee Fong. If you want to look it up, it was yeah. a lobbying group that represents. Pharmaceutical corporations such as Moderna and Pfizer um, wrote to the Biden administration shortly after it took office, basically calling on the government to sanction any country that violates its patent rights regarding the vaccine. And then BioNTech, which is like a, I guess a subsidiary of Pfizer, which developed the vaccine, had somebody... Uh, reach out to Twitter to directly request that Twitter censor tweet, uh, censor users who will tweet at, like, Pfizer's account advocating for a generic, low-cost version of the vaccine that could be distributed more widely. So these, again, these weren't, weren't even the hardcore anti-vaccine people. They were just coming at it from, like, a, I don't know, maybe more of an economic um, Egalitarian but standpoint, the, and yet the they lobby, were, you know, directly targeted. Even the lobbyists, I think, would have to make a like a, a defensible reason. Like, did they try to? Did they have a defensible reason? Uh, yeah, they're just citing uh, they're citing um, misinformation. I think. Well, was there misinformation? Maybe there. Maybe it was there was some misinformation there. I mean, I'm, I'm no, I mean, I don't, I, not, not in the example, I mean, look it up yourself if you want to, I mean, not one in the, the example that we find shows, it's just, it's just a guy, I mean, here's one of the accounts that was targeted, it just as a person, like this, you know, retiree, pensioner in England, saying, you know, dear Albert Borea, who's the CEO, 
Nine out of 10 people in poor countries are going to miss out on the COVID vaccine next year. Will Pfizer, etc., do such and such to ensure that everyone everywhere can be safe? We need hashtag people's vaccine. And people's vaccine was the hashtag that was brought to the attention of Twitter by BioNTech, some BioNTech representative asking that they take, you know, this censorship or disciplinary action. Okay, direct pressure on social media. Reach out to Twitter to directly censor users tweeting us for a generic low-cost vaccine. Uh, Let me, if you want me to, I got this up here. Uh, So it's in German. We can't, the email's in German. Let's see. Uh, These are real people. Uh, Yeah, and they they accused one of the guys cited as being a fake account. So that's how they try to uh, instigate Twitter take action by saying it's like inauthentic use of the platform or their bots or something, and you know, yeah. you know, Lee Fong verifies that that particular guy anyway is so, yeah. is real. Uh, so many of the tweets they can't focus on were truly unhinged misinfo, like claims that vaccines cause microchips, but other ones were gray area, like vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. Okay, right, which uh, are policy they, questions, yes, and uh, that gets lumped into this whole category of misinformation yeah. or harm yeah. being allowed to. Proliferate I mean, online. This is, yeah, I mean, this is what lobby, lobbyists lobbyists are going to lobby. I mean, <laughs> this is not you know, this is not well, this is yeah. Not too, too <laughs> so when lobbyists do something objectionable, point it out. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. You, I, I, I noticed. Some, I don't know if it's a temperamental difference between us or something more philosophical, but I do notice that like when a problem gets mentioned, or when like a bad act is identified as having potentially occurred, you'll often respond with something like, "Well." So-and-so is just the member of this broad category of, of people who always do this kind of thing. Or like, you know, this, this bad thing is very common, so why get worked up over this specific example of the bad thing happening? Um, whereas, I guess my instinct is more to say, yeah, I mean, I don't deny. And I am happy to grant that the problem that is being discussed here is uh, widespread, but I don't see how that undermines the... Uh, I guess the logic there's of, so many... of, of, of paying attention to this particular instance of the problem. Yeah. Well, there's more, I mean, there's infinite bad th- number of bad things going on in the world, right? And we are, yeah. we have only limit, uh, limit, limited finite time uh, on this earth. Sure. And so it's like, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> it's like we have to prioritize sort of what we pay. I'm not saying we should have talked about this. I mean, I brought this whole thing up, so I'm interested in it. Right. That's what I'm looking at on, on Twitter. But in general, like, you know, how mad you should be, I think we should, you know, always put things in perspective. How mad you should be. Well, I mean, there are, but there are, there, there might be an infinite number of things you could focus on in the world, but there are a finite number of Twitter files threads. And this happened to be the focus of one of them. Yeah. And, I'm not sure, like, what acknowledging that there are an infinite number of potential problems in the universe really signals or should, you know, compel upon you uh, in practice. Because, like, what does that mean? I, I therefore, well, like, have to, to right? more carefully calibrate how angry I get about something. Like, how do yeah. you even do that? I, I try to, I try to do that. I try to, say, I try to say this is unprecedented and strange. Yeah. And something well outside the bounds of. You know our democratic ideals, and then sometimes things are, things are just yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't have steer. I didn't have steam coming out of my ears when I read this Twitter thread. I didn't have like a, I didn't have like a, a, a blathering breakdown where I was like writhing on the floor. I just read something that was of curiosity, and yeah. you know it bears on like the wider question. No, of, it's interesting. You know, corporate interesting. and government commingling to impose censorship on social media, which is a topic well, lots of people are interested, you, in, including myself. 
I'll tell you this. So I uh, so I mean to show you that I will brush off everything. I mean, I'll say there's some things. They're the worst Twitter file I saw by far. Yeah, some of them are like I think overrated. Some of them are not that big of a deal. But uh, the worst one I saw by far was the. Um, it was one of the first ones. It was the first one I think on the COVID stuff. Uh, yeah, with Jay Baratria or whatever, however you pronounce yeah, his name, yeah, being um, really, downranked. That was really that was really bad. That was just like scientists saying, you know, smart things. And, you know, they ended up being right about the going overboard and the lockdowns. And I think like even a lot of people who were for lockdowns at the time, like, you know, they've sort of quietly come around to, you know, not, not wanting these kind of mandates anymore. Um, yeah, that was, that was really bad. And that was just like the worst thing I've seen. I've seen Twitter. Everything well, else is like, it's arguable. This person is just a bad actor. They're misinformation. They're not contributing to the discussion. But that was really, you know, that was just an unusually bad case. I think the most straightforwardly valuable one, or maybe I shouldn't say that, but the one that was maybe most eye-popping and satisfying and clearly journalistically justified in every respect, one was the uh, one that was somewhat recent, it was on January 12th from Taibbi on the fa- fake tale of Russian bots and the release of the memo hashtag. Now, as somebody who was in the weeds of Russiagate for several years straight and, like, took all the incoming associated with that and was, like, you know, uh, ensnared in these uh, micro-debates, it basically just proved, among other things, this tw- Twitter thread, I mean, that... The whole conceit of that Hamilton 68 dashboard, I don't know if, what, if you know what that is, but it was this, I think it's still active. The German Marshall Fund and its subsidiary that was founded post-2016 called Securing Democracy, they had this, you know, what they made out to be this very sophisticated social media monitoring uh, platform or tool where they were constantly showing, like, when there were supposed surges in Russian bot activity on, on Twitter, and then the, you would just have it mindlessly quoted as an expert authority on, quote, Russian interference throughout the media all the time with no critical uh, hesitation. And uh, this particular thread shows that Twitter executives who were being appealed to by congressional staff, like the staff of uh, Adam Schiff, and some others, uh, Diane Feinstein, um, they knew that the data or that the claims being pumped out into the media ecosystem by Hamilton 68 were just BS um, because they actually contradicted what Twitter was ascertaining internally about the presence or lack thereof of Russian bot uh, activity. So... Um, yeah, like so there was one example where Twitter a Twitter executive is internally saying that they investigated the claim that originated with the Hamilton 68 dashboard and then was, you know, seized upon by others for largely partisan reasons to discredit this memo that was put out by uh, Devin Nunes, saying that they found that the engagement on a particular topic was overwhelmingly organic. Um, but that wasn't being told to the public at the time. I mean, if you were at all of a conscientious you know, citizen and you were aware of the propaganda tactics being employed at that time, then you could pretty well uh, infer it. But this is uh, you know, definitive proof that it was well known about the fraudulence of that uh, particular, particular online platform. Um, and basically it just shows you know, Twitter staffers interacting with Senate and House staffers trying, whether 
trying to be uh, coerced, where the staffers for the politicians are trying to basically coerce Twitter into taking certain action that could then be cited by the politician to like bolster their own efforts around supposedly combating Russian interference. And, you know, so for example, Dick Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, a Democrat, had his staff told directly that a set of claims he was about to put make in a statement around these Russian bots was groundless. Um, and Blumenthal published the statement anyway, or a letter, rather. Um, so <laughs> even though it was directly refuted, the veracity of the claims were directly refuted by Twitter officials, it didn't matter to Blumenthal because he was one of the most zealous sort of proponents of this entire bogus narrative, and he put out the bunk letter regardless. Um, and it shows just like the, the, the give and take that the Twitter officials and the congressional staff are having where like there's an illusion by the Twitter officials that maybe if they, uh, uh, Blumenthal holds off on publishing this particular letter, like down the line, they'll give him something that will be useful to him. And uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's so obviously informative and revelatory. And then, you know, fast forward today, not that Tidy goes into this in the thread, but like Dick Blumenthal is one of the most hardcore interventionist on Ukraine stuff. I just posted actually a, a video clip of him a few days ago where he had just recently gone to Ukraine with um, Lindsey Graham and uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, where basically Blumenthal was proclaiming that um, the U.S. just needs to pull out all the stops, remove, remove any remaining restrictions on the type of arms that would be sent, and just, you know, go full-fledged in waging the war, in, in part because Blumenthal was claiming that if Putin isn't stopping Ukraine, then the United States is next. So it's just like totally bonkers rhetoric on his part. Um, and, you know, I, I would, you know, uh, postulate that there's a connection here, right, between his hawkishness now and how he interacted with the supposed Russian interference narrative on a more domestic domestic political level in the past several years, there's kind of like a continuum there that I think is worth uh, fleshing out more. Yeah, I mean, the interesting question is like now that like, you know, presumably Twitter is not policing the Russian bots anymore. I mean, we must be drowning in propaganda, right? I mean, is there belief that the Russian bots just stop because they don't think Elon is policing that stuff, right? Well, they don't think he is, but one of the very first things Elon said that he actually was going to do on Twitter is try to get rid of all the bots. So that would include Russian bots. I mean, Elon, I don't think ever renounced the idea of monitoring and ridding Twitter of Russian bots or any bots. I think that was always one of the, even when he was in his phase earlier on, when he was kind of at least making yeah. gestures about, about free speech absolutism, that was one of the things that he said he was going to continue doing. But they just think he's a Russian something or other anyway, meaning his, like the critics. You know, in part, it's like he did that proposal for a war, a resolution to the war that, you know, Zelensky trolled him back on and all that. So, I mean, Musk was already assumed to be some sort of Russian influence agent regardless. So it had no, made no difference what he actually was going to be doing in terms of content moderation on the platform. Yeah, well, at least he teamed up with Eliza and uh, uh, saved our children. Even though, ironically, Musk, I think even still to this day, although the um, finances behind it may have changed somewhat, but, you know, for... Uh, no, many months as when the war started. I mean, Musk has been providing free of charge. Oh yeah, that's software funny, yeah. that's like direct, that's like vital 
to the combat operations of Ukraine. It's not, I mean, it's not as though Starlink is in Ukraine just so the average citizen in like a war-torn area can get some internet. No, I mean, they, they use these uh, Starlink, um, you know, mobile units to actually allow for Ukraine to engage in real-time uh, combat communication. So it's like absolutely integral to the war effort, yet like that somehow never, that somehow didn't give him the... Uh, enough credibility to ward off these, you know, Russian stooge allegations. So yeah. you, you can never, think, uh, you, you can never win. Um, I mean, do you think like, uh, Elon buying Twitter, like, did that matter in the end? Doesn't, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, I don't know. I thought it was a big deal when it happened. I'm like, my estimate of like how important it is sort of has gone down as time has gone on. Uh, yeah, I think it matters. I mean, you were, taking almost like a maximalist interpretation of how important it was early on. Like, I remember almost your exact quote, like, yeah, this is a big deal. Twitter is is extremely influential. Um, So who runs it really matters and who can get a platform on it is like hugely significant. I I mean, I I think that's all kind of still true, but where I was downplaying the significance of it was in reaction to people who were making these like hair on fire declarations about how you know twitter was teetering on the brink of collapse or musk is such an idiot that he's like destroying the platform and it's um you know basically just being neutered from within or whatever like the theory was where you had these uh chicken littles you know running around in circles making the most you know dire prognostications about what the fate of twitter would be i i always was of the view that, you know, more or less, Twitter is going to remain fairly stable in its sort of just basic user experience. You know, I, so I, I still think it's somewhat significant, although I, I do have to say that there's some weird changes that have been made to Twitter that I, I'm not particularly crazy about, like the that community notes function where people <laughs> can just, like, slap some, like, quasi-fact check on your tweets and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So, I don't know, but, well, but that was yeah, always the case the for me. Stuff. I always, like, objected to certain things that Twitter did, but, um, I don't know. I think that some of the stuff balances out, like, okay, like, right-wing people, like, get to speak more, like, far-out people, but, like, they don't, you know, make conservatives look that good. Uh, so, like, you know, there's an electoral consequence to letting a lot of these people speak, right? So well, I don't like care about that. I mean, I have no interest in, cons- quote, conservatives looking good. Well, I mean, I'm, but yeah, but I'm just trying to sort of ex- explain, understand sort of the influence on our on our politics, right? So it's like, you know, these people have free speech, but there's like a counter, there's a counter to them, right? Like they sort of make, they make fools of themselves, you know, the more, some people make more fools of themselves, the more they're allowed to talk. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, and it's sort, of, it's sort of like, I think it like distracts a lot of people. So I think a lot of the policy stuff just keeps going. Like, you know, nobody's like paying attention to, yeah, you know, the debt ceiling stuff, like, no one's really paying attention to it. People are paying attention to just, you know, random, uh, you know, as far as I can see, random cultural stuff. So, you know, maybe it just distracts us. So one group feels more emboldened than the other. But, like, that doesn't really change the world all that much. I did notice that there was a while, and who knows if this is just incidental, meaning it wasn't kind of brought about through any intentional tweaks of the Twitter, you know, infrastructure or like the uh, back-end system, but I don't know. Just what I noticed anecdotally for a while is that the um, the uh, visibility and the uh, uh, annoyance of those, you know, 
pro-Ukraine trolls, the NAFO people, it seemed to like go away for a while. I mean, or I didn't see that much from them for a while, whereas like there were several months where they would just be swarming me constantly. Not that this is like the ma- um, a major thing that everybody should be concerned about, but, you know, I just happened to notice it. Um, after Elon kind of uh, officially took over, I did notice a uh, diminishment in that. Maybe it was, again, just coincidental, but then, you know, within the past month or two, it seems like they've uh, picked up steam and are back to, like, their ordinary uh, fervor, so who knows? Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, speaking of which, we should probably talk about you. Yeah, yeah, that that was going to be my segue. Um, What was your uh, initial reaction to the Uh, tank news? Yeah, I mean, we called, we, 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 you know, every, it's uh, sort of, we, we repeat ourselves uh, you know, we knew this was coming. I, you know, I didn't think it would come this fast. I mean, I think the Germans held out, and uh, so they really had to commit to the Abrams tanks, which won't come until late this year or next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's moving much faster than I thought. I mean, there's already a political report on fighter jets uh, that they're already um, they're talking about it. So, I mean, what's gonna I mean, what's gonna happen? It's gonna be. Uh, you know, we're going to keep, we're going to keep going. And so the question, I think it's like the next time there's a big offensive by one side or the other, it'll tell us something, right? If Ukraine can't do anything, um, maybe that'll sort of get people to rethink and maybe try to, you know, settle the war. Uh, if Ukraine, you know, succeeds with these weapons, I think there's going to be overwhelming pressure to have more. I think if Russia starts uh, gaining land, also the pressure will be overwhelming. So I think like st- a stalemate's like the only way this doesn't keep escalating. Otherwise it will. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, within like an hour of Biden making official the announcement that the U.S. would be sending the Abrams tanks, there had already been the uh, lobbying effort kicked into full swing by Ukraine government officials to now start demanding jets. I mean, actually not even start because they've been demanding jets sort of here and there for for months, but you know clearly as ha- tanks have been and then resulted in this announcement, um, tanks have been the focus of their weaponry lobbying for a while, and then that succeeded. And clearly, it, it seems like jets are now the new the new focus. So you know, it'll probably take some time for that to all come into uh, come to fruition. But there's every reason to think that it's just going to keep going on the same trajectory like we've been saying probably ad nauseum but look at the uh, that new yorker article that we talked about at the time from october where it gave like the first sort of detailed journalistic insight into the combat operations that the u.s is engaging in jointly with ukraine and the um you know aspects of how like it's the whole operation is working logistically in that article at the end the ukraine defense minister minister reznikov says um you know he goes through this whole routine that you and i've talked about where he says like every time we've been nominally met with resistance by the americans for a request it turns out that we get the thing that we had initially encountered resistance to as time goes on and he actually issued a direct prediction he said quote i'm certain mm-hmm. that tomorrow and by tomorrow it means like you know in the future there will be tanks and Actums or ATACMS, which is the, are these longer range, um, this much longer range artillery uh, units, and F-16s. So scratch one off the list. He got it. He was right about that one. And, you know, do you get the sense that the momentum disfavors 
that he's going to be right on the next two or that it favors it. I mean, it seems to me that it would favor it. They're going all in. Um, and, yeah, it's just... Uh, Again, when I, whenever I'm asked to talk about this in a public venue where like, I'm talking to people who are um, maybe not following me that consistently, like I was on some serious radio show this morning, and I just tried to make the point from like a longer view perspective that just imagine what you would have thought if you know, last March or April or something you were told that by January, the following January, the United States would be sending main battle tanks into Ukraine, squadrons, a squadron of them, a full, you know, even battalion. That's what the White House spokesperson characterized these, this number 31 of Abrams' tanks as. Uh, you would probably think that, well, that represents a pretty conspicuous escalation in the American military commitment to this war that maybe I hadn't been fully cognizant would be a possibility. But now, like, again, everybody's inert to it, and... Uh, yeah, there was attention paid to this development around the tanks, but it's not like it really even prompted a whole lot of de- debate. It's just, just like one of these things that comes down the pike and everybody just is habituated into accepting as normal, even though it's truly lud- uh, bonkers. It's, it's lunacy if you think about it with any semblance of like a longer-term perspective. Like two years ago, if, I had, if, you, had any, if you had told me that the U.S. would be engaged in this level of warfare with Russia, I, I would have thought that it was like a Tom Clancy fever dream type thing, and that was not entirely for, uh, plausible or feasible. But, you know, I would have been proven wrong, and I'm uh, happy to allow for me being proven wrong about things in the future, but going, going uh, on the pattern that's already been established, uh, yeah, get ready for the fighter jets and the longer-range missiles within due course. Yeah, I mean, it's going faster than we expected. I mean, I think they've, and, and the New York Times and so, these other, you know, these other websites have said, you know, these other news reports have said this. It seems like they've come to the conclusion that Russia will not uh, escalate, that there's not going to be uh, uh, a nuclear, there's not going to be basically a, a nuclear response, which is all, you know, all they really care about. And I think that's, I think that's the calculation. So they, they think they can just keep going. I think that's pretty much it. Well, yeah, or the way they put it in the New York Times article was that, you know, administration officials are, you know, lowering their resistance to some of these weapon systems because they feel that, you know, Putin has demonstrated that his red lines are not as, you know, definitive as maybe they might have feared. But I don't I don't get that. I mean, that logic doesn't make any sense to me because so who knows? Because he didn't take nuclear, because he didn't do a nuclear reprisal in October, that means he couldn't do it in February. Even, well, they, so, they, so, so, in order to test whether Putin is going to retaliate with maximalist tactics, you have to keep crossing red lines to see which one actually triggers it. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, because, like, I, I think it's the problem with... Uh, the problem with the Russians' credibility is, I, you know, we talked, we probably talked about this at the time, although my memory is not good enough to remember that when uh, when they annexed all that, when they so-called annexed all that territory, right, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk, they had this, uh, you know, Putin had this like press conference, and he basically he threatened, you know, he said we'll use whatever means, and that means everything, basically like 
you know, saying that if you try to take Russian territory, and these were quote unquote Russian territory, that you use nukes. So there was a lot of talk of this at like the beginning of the war. And then like Ukraine takes this so-called Russian territory, right? In Kherson. And, you know, there's no nukes, right? And so, and they, and, you know, every time the U.S. escalates, Russia like grumbles a little bit. Um, and, you know, they have done more things. They've attacked like the Ukrainian infrastructure. So they can, uh, even there's another missile attack, uh, missile barrage against Kiev after this last uh, tank uh, news came out in the last day or so. Right. Uh, but you know, I mean, Russia. The thing is, Russia has escalated. No, they haven't gotten to the uh, well. They haven't done Defcon scenario where they're firing nuclear warheads everywhere. But like, there are gradations of escalation below that. So they did start targeting civilian infrastructure for the first well, time, yeah, I mean, like yeah, the energy yeah. grid after you know that truck bombing on the Crimea Bridge. And that yeah. was like, that was in direct retaliation. So, I mean, there are examples of them acting in kind when there are, as, you know, short well, of nuclear well, escalation, when there are various escalations in the U.S.-Ukraine war effort. Yeah, but the, those aren't towards, you know, the United States, right? So they're not, this is not towards the West. These are escalation towards the people of Ukraine. And so that's what they've shown that they're willing to do. They're, you know, they're, they haven't shown a willingness to uh, escalate against the U.S., um, and even the nuclear rhetoric has gone away, and there was once rhetoric, and that's sort of gone. So, you know, it's not crazy for them to start thinking, okay, there's, you know, Russia has decided, or, you know, they're, they're probably not going to be in a situation where they're going to think using, using nuclear weapons makes sense. I mean, I think that's the calculation. And I, you know, I think that if Russia had, like, never talked about it until now, and then, like, started talking about it later, that would be, like, you know, more credible. But if you say, like, if you talk about something all the time, right, and then you never do it, uh, you know, you're going to be less credible than you're, uh, well, that you're ever going to do it. Yeah, uh, Branko I don't know if you know him, but he's worth oh, uh, following. Him, yeah, yeah he, he, he put it a good way, so let me just read out what he, he said. Part of what makes me nervous about U.S.-NATO escalating involvement despite Russia's warnings is that it shows you can only ignore another power's warnings so long before it does something drastic to show it's serious. Moscow keeps saying escalatory arms transfers are unacceptable and could mean wider war, U.S. officials say that since Moscow hasn't acted on those threats, they can freely escalate. Russia is effectively told it has to escalate to show it's serious about lines. But here's the problem. If Putin does escalate for this purpose, NATO governments will point to that as a reason to escalate also, since Putin is a madman and dangerous, etc., and must not be appeased. We're trapped in a situation where nearly all roads lead to escalation, which is true. Um, well, so, I mean, Putin could. I mean, Putin could. You know, there, he doesn't have to just launch a nuke tomorrow, right? There could be indications, right? He could, say, you know, he could say something. He could, but then the point is, you can't just let it pass. You can't just like like he's done every other time, uh, just not do anything, right? He could, like, you know, like there's a uh, you know reporting in the news that like, oh, the U.S. has seen no indication that you know Russia has like mobilized its nuclear forces or or whatever whatever the term would be for like the you know the prelude to using nukes, right? So there could be something between use nukes and not. There could be signals that okay. That's going to happen soon, but they, but they, but they're, you know, we don't see any evidence that there are actually those signals, and you know, they would only see those signals if they, I think, they were serious because if you, their bluff got called, um, that would be, you know, that would be that would be just even more damaging for their credibility. So, I, yeah, I, I get it, but there's, I get what uh, this guy Branko is is saying, uh, but you know, or maybe is, another way to put it is, if Russia declines to escalate after any given action by the U.S. or NATO. That's taken as evidence that U.S. and NATO can continue to escalate, right? Whereas if Russia does escalate, 
in response to one of these U.S.-NATO actions. That's also taken as evidence that the U.S. and NATO must continue to escalate because if they don't, if they don't um, match Putin, then that means they're appeasing him or they're getting sort of, uh, you know, clowned by him or they're, they're uh, falling for his tactics. So every option, it seems, leads up the decision tree toward escalation. Maybe, I mean, maybe because, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they would have, because, you know, the, the Biden administration has taken steps not to directly engage Russia territory, right? The, they haven't had the attack comes the I, I, ICBMs. And, you know, maybe if Russians had, you know, taken some step outside of the, you know, outside of what they've been doing, I don't know, hit Poland or something, you know, this is bad, this, you know, or, or like nuked something in Ukraine, like, you know, maybe that you know, maybe the U.S. would have backed off. I don't know. I'm not sure that every step leads to escalation. But, you know, there has to be, I think, for Russia not to not to, to stop the West from continuing just to provide weapons. It would need to do something. And if it's not willing to do something that's, like, more extreme than it's been doing, uh, you're just going to basically get more of the same. Well, I guess maybe a better way of putting it is that the logic around escalation that seems to be operative at the moment appears to kind of perpetually beget additional escalation in that like if you don't escalate that's escalatory but if you do escalate and it results in additional escalation then that's good or you know something along those lines it's like they, they, they've created this like logical uh paradoxical sort of uh you know you know thought device that somehow always spits out okay then escalate as the uh like game theoretical option that is most uh, advantageous to like justify the policy, so. Um. Well, I mean, there hasn't been much escalation. If you think in terms of escalation, like outside, like there's been escalation on the battlefield of Russia and Ukraine. You could have imagined escalation in the sense that it, it you know, goes <coughs> over the borders, right? You could imagine, yeah, strike on like uh, you know another NATO country. People were talking about Moldova at the beginning. They were talking about Transnistra that Russia would try to like take that. Um, you could have imagined, like, you know, they killed Dugan's daughter, but, like, that was a, uh, we, we think that was Ukraine. So you could imagine the U.S. doing stuff like that. There was a story in the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this, about a mail bombing campaign in Spain. Did you see this? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that, that, never, might be, caught, that never amounted to anything. Uh, well, I mean, they, uh, you know, they said nobody doesn't look Was like it a campaign or was the, a mail bomb showed up to, like, the, was it the uh, no, it was Ukrainian a bunch of embassy different... in Spain? Yeah, it was like Ukrainian ministry. I think like either the prime minister or the defense minister, like some like you know somebody important, um, and a few other things. And then like uh, you know, so like we haven't seen that. Like maybe that's a warning of like what Russia would do. I think it would probably you know I don't know probably probably be pretty bad for them. But like you know we haven't seen. You say we've seen escalation. Like yes, we've seen escalation. Like. Russia, you know, Ukraine reaching into Russia and doing the Dugan thing and hitting uh, Bolgrad and these these uh, places within well, Russia. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, if you've seen Russia hit Ukraine, like, but but the point is, it's all been Russia and Ukraine, right? As far as like actual violence, and so that's sort of the contained nature of the conflict. Well, I mean, only if you make a certain number of like arbitrary assumptions that limit how you conceptualize the idea of. I don't think it's arbitrary to say it's not beyond Russia and Ukraine. I mean, Russia and Ukraine are, you know, you could have, I'm saying that that's like, you know, you could have imagined it's spilling across the borders. And it Okay, hasn't. so, right, so like, because an, another theater of warfare hasn't broken out in, a, in another country, then 
the escalation that ha- actually has occurred short of that is like therefore not weighty enough to that's weighty take into yeah, account. No, it's weighty. It's it's weighty and important. Um, but I mean, there know. was a mis- there was a missile incident in Poland. I mean, it, obviously, it didn't. It wasn't like there was an incursion into Poland with a full like u- unit of military personnel or something. But you know, there was something that stemmed from the war that yeah. occurred in Poland where people well, were saying, killed. If, if you're Biden, right, and you're thinking, how much can we get away with and not be hit back? You're going to look at these facts, and it's you know you don't you don't you maybe you're Biden. You don't your number one priority is not making sure that Russia doesn't target critical infrastructure in Ukraine. That's not something that you care about. It's not, and it's not that Ukraine doesn't, you know, assassinate people in Russia, right? You care about, you know, an attack on a NATO country, not like this accidental uh, thing with the thing, with the uh, thing, and you care about direct uh, military conflict between Russia and the U.S., right? And so you haven't seen that. Now, I'm just saying that that's like, it's not like the other stuff's not important, but from the question of like whether we're going to see more escalation, we haven't seen that kind of escalation. So when people worry about world war, I mean, that's what they worry about. And so it's like, it's a different thing if it goes beyond the Russian and you know, Ukrainian borders. Well, sure. Um, well, it, it seems like Biden's um, priority right now, or the thing he's focused on right now, is making sure the New York Times knows that he was deeply conflicted and uh, hesitant and uh, reluctant to authorize the uh, tra- tank deployments because obviously that makes a huge amount of difference. I mean, if, if his brain was flashing him with sensations of reluctance as opposed to eagerness or enthusiasm, then uh, you know, that makes a lot of like, operational and substantive difference. So thank God that that was conveyed to the New York Times. Um, it reminded, it uh, reminded me of something and caused me to do like, a little bit of a refresher research today because I remember the term reluctant being used often in uh, Vietnam to describe when like it was carried out that there were new sort of escalations in U.S. force presence there that it was only being done reluctantly. So that was usually the line that was taken for public consumption. And um, and I found this uh, example, which is, you know, from the Pentagon Papers, actually, where in 1961, when Kennedy was still still in office, he uh, dispatched this General Taylor to go to Vietnam and write a report on his recommendations for like what the U.S. force posture should be going forward. And uh, Taylor recommended ultimately that a several thousand more additional U.S. personnel be deployed, but they be deployed under the auspices of either humanitarian assistance, meaning uh, they, uh, they were supposed to be like helping with the fallout from a flood or uh, for some training purposes. Uh, so they wanted, they were kind of all strategizing how not to make it seem like the U.S. troops that would be going were going to be engaged in combat. Um, and uh, Kennedy, you know, kind of partially assented to these uh, recommendations, including by within a, a month or two, uh, establishing a joint U.S. Forces Command overseeing the so-called assistance mission in Vietnam. Um, and it was led by a three-star general. It just so happens that uh, in November, it was announced that the U.S. would uh, likewise be establishing a joint forces command to preside over its military operations vis-a-vis Ukraine, and it would be 
ran, run by another three-star general. And they even use the same sort of euphemistic nomenclature in the, the title of the command. It's the Ukraine Assistance um, Initiative, I think. Or they, they use the word assistance just as, the, just, they, just as they did with the uh, Vietnam Joint Command. And, you know, of course, later on it comes out, you know, when the general is retired and he's doing interviews that the supposed assistance mission was nothing, uh, nothing even uh, bearing on reality in terms of that being the appropriate word, meaning it was hooey, because those personnel were just sort of intrinsically geared toward also incorporating co- a combat role into their deployment. Um, and so, you know, when we hear now that uh, the U.S. is sending all these more incredibly more advanced weapon systems, whether it's the tanks, the Abrams tanks, or the uh, uh, Bradley fighting vehicles, or the Patriot batteries, or, you know, potentially going forward, the uh, Attackums and the, the jets, um, there's this whole, like, underbelly of bureaucratic and, like, logistical infrastructure that we're really not being told much about. Um, and so it's impossible to say until those details are more uh, publicized uh, what, to what extent the U.S. will have a direct operational or personnel role in the deployment or operation or maintenance of those uh, weapon systems. So um, all we have to do is like all, all we can really do is like rely on the good will and the uh, er, the honesty of officials who say that this is not actual combat. But, you know, there's a very stark pattern in the past where, as a matter of deliberate public relations strategy, the combat role of U.S. military personnel are, are obscured because that would cause political issues. Um, so they just kind of keep it on the down low and just use different terminology to, to characterize the, the presence of those forces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you sent me this... Uh Send me this thread. Yeah, that was the thread I, I said. I didn't have a chance to look at it. Uh, is, is that the point? Is that the point there uh, uh, that there's basically going to be a lot of U.S. logistical people around? Well, we don't know. I'm just pointing to like a, a precedent because you know we're only we're always bombarded with analogies of you know Hitler in 1938 or something. So the, here's another potentially apt historical analogy about at least the dimension of the current intervention that's maybe worth taking into account. Um, but you know that's not really what people would prefer to focus on because. This analogy actually relates to the uh, scope and and uh, nature of the U.S. intervention, and you know we don't want to preoccupy ourselves preoccupy ourselves with that. The, the purpose of historical analogies is always to declare the world oh, historic no, yeah, <laughs> moral evil of the uh, whoever the current villain is. And yeah, that's too. Uh, uh, you're too to Hitler. Uh, I mean, if you have a, if you know a historical analogy other than World War Two, I mean that's way too. That's that's uh, well, yeah, and the irony is, I do think that there are some potentially apt parallels between this current war and World War II, but not in the way that people think. Like, I think in the pre-war period, meaning before the U.S. formally entered the war in 1941, you know, there was a lot of policy and a lot of sort of mobilization that occurred. That you do notice, or at least I notice, has some uh, eerie uh, echoes of what uh, the stuff, some of the sort of stuff we see now, but I'm not going to get into that with uh, a huge amount of detail at the moment. One other thing that I wanted to uh, just mention to you, and then we'll go to calls, is that um, you know, earlier today I was curious to see if the Green Party of Germany had its 
manifesto available for the 2021 federal election in Germany, which was a you know, big election because it led to the ouster um, of Merkel's uh, Christian Democratic Party and you know, led to, was when Merkel herself stood down in Germany after like 16 years and uh, led to the uh, taking of power of this guy, Olaf Scholz, who was now, who was like, became public enemy number one because he like, seemed to be dithering on the tank issue, although I don't even think that was really correctly portrayed because Germany never even received a request by any of the states that had been recipients of the, the Leopard tanks um, to get Germany to authorize their deployment to Ukraine. Like, only on the day that the announcement was made did Poland actually officially transmit yeah, but it's, I mean, that it's request to, to Germany. So I don't know, but that's sort of a side according issue. To all, isn't according to all reporting that that's you know, understood that they, they want to? I mean, I know you said it's not an official statement, but do you, do you have any reason to doubt that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the reporting was geared toward basically condemning Germany and, and like uh, um, ginning up like a public uh, backlash against them and trying basically, you know, compelling them to take action. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if like, there's no evidence that I've seen that Germany ever denied a request from a country to which it had previously sold Leopard tanks to have, uh, 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 allow those tanks to be sent to Ukraine. But I, I don't know, but maybe, maybe that's sort of a side issue, but the, the Green Party thing is hilarious because there's this, uh, for the foreign minister, this woman, uh, Babcock, I think her last name is. Um, she was appearing before the uh, Council of Europe, which only meets very occasionally. I'm not even sure what the hell the Council of Europe does, frankly. I think it's but like the she, executive functioning. It's supposed to be the executive function of Europe, I think. No, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's not a European Union body. It's a separate body. As far oh, as it's I understand. not part of the European Union? No, okay. so it's not part of the European Union. It's something else. They have all these, like... No, it is. It says it is an EU institution. Okay, I mean, it might be EU affiliated, but it's not like the European. Um, I, I, all I know is the Council of Europe meets only occasionally, so it's not like one of the primary EU government. Yeah, it's the president. Yeah, like I said, it's sort of like the equivalent of the uh, executive branch. Although it's not that's not a good analogy, but it's like sort of like that. Oh, anyway, so when she was appearing before this body a few days ago, she made the statement that you know we shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves because. What we need to focus on is that we're all fighting a war against Russia, which is, you know, a pretty overt statement of, you know, intent or of, uh, you know, a pretty unusually sort of, uh, you know, striking or jarring description of what the actual nature of the Western quote-unquote policy is. And so I clipped out that video and posted it, and it seemed to go uh, pretty <laughs> viral. Like, I mean, I was, uh, I was getting uh, lots of responses from German politicians, like people in the Bundestag, I think is how you pronounce it, and uh, people in the European Parliament in France and uh, Netherlands and Germany. So people apparently hadn't been aware of that, so they're not tuning in ardently into the uh, Council of Europe proceedings either. Um, but it uh, led me to check out what her party actually promised in its most recent manifesto, because this uh, woman is a member of the Green Party. She's a member of the governing coalition of Germany. Schultz is a different party, but she's the Green Party She's like the most pro senior Green Party official in the government. And if you uh, look up the manifesto that they put out in 2021, so like not a long time ago, okay, less than um, two and a half years or so. or Sorry, less than a year and a half. I'm, I'm, I'm screwing up my uh, chronology. Um, but the manifesto statement that the Green Party of Germany put out 
ahead of the 2021 German federal election is unequivocal. There's a section where it says, without any ambiguity, quote, no German weapons in war zones or dictatorships. Export of arms and military equipment to dictatorships, regimes that do not respect human rights, and war zones must be banned. And, you know, they go on and on about how they're all about uh, arms control and how they want to, you know, restore dialogue with Russia, um, how Germany's role in the world stage should be all about finding measures to de-escalate in conflict zones rather than escalate. Um, and all that has just been utterly repudiated now because not only are the Green Party members in the governing coalition of Schultz, which has taken this decision, but they have for a long time, including this woman in particular, um, whose name is, whose last name is Bear Bach, sorry. Um, she's been one of the most vociferous advocates, you know, berating Schultz to authorize not just this recent tank deployment, but all kinds of other more interventionist measures for some time now. And I thought you would enjoy this. It's all um, justified in the manifesto as uh, reflecting a, quote, feminist foreign policy. So the Green Party of Germany says that its entire MO is that it needs, it wants to make sure that Germany is carrying out a, quote, feminist foreign policy. So I don't know if they've abandoned that one. I don't think so. I think their own, I think this feminist foreign policy just happens to be consistent with deploying tanks into war zones and repudiating the uh, German policy since the Second World War of not sending this kind of heavy, wep- heavy weaponry into uh, into combat. Well, so I do. I, well, I do amusing. appreciate that. I remember there was all these articles when the, the Green Party came to power about how like all the top defense officials are going to be women's right. So it's like women defense minister, women this, woman this, woman that, and the defense minister is funny. She just recently resigned. Yeah. And I, I was reading about this. Apparently, like, she, like, admitted in, like, interviews she, like, knew nothing about, like, military ranks. And, like, yeah. I'm sort of just, like, clueless about, like, all the war stuff. And uh, this was, like, a sort of a scandal. Um, and, yeah, she resigned. So, yeah, you know, the German, German politics is interesting. I mean, it's a very... Like, you'd think Green Party would be, like, some radical... Like, imagine if the American Green Party came... Yeah, came Jill Stein... Yeah, but the, like the Green Party doesn't seem all that different from like the Christian Democrats. Or what is the left wing party in Germany? What's it called? Well, there is a party called the Left. It's like the. I, I, yeah. I, well, what's I the mainstream? What's the word. biggest left? What's the biggest left wing party in Germany? Uh, I guess it would be the Green Party, but there's a small social a, Democrats, right? Well, well, that's Schultz's party. So that's like I guess center left. The Green Party, and I, I'm I'm generalizing here. People can correct me if I'm getting the nuances wrong. My understanding was that the Green Party was seen as like a tick to the left of Schultz's party, Social yeah. Democrats. And yeah, then you have also true. a party yeah. called the left, yeah, um, yeah. which along with the um, AFD, meaning the, um, uh, the right-wing party, um, are the only two parties that are really opposing any of the interventionist measures and criticizing Schultz. So you have like a, yeah. this like left-right. No, no, right. it's, it's social. This, yeah. Yeah, but I was thinking of the uh, traditional 
left wing party, social democratic party, right? That's the that's the center left. So the Christian yeah. social, social, but yeah, they all seem. And, like and Merkel's party was considered center uh, right, right, meaning the yeah. uh, the Christian Democratic Party. Yeah, and I mean, and then she welcomed all the immigrants, and all the far right people got mad at her for that. So those, it seems like their parties are not very, you know, they're not. Uh, no, uh, there's not doesn't seem as huge differences between them like there is, you know, here. Like imagine like a Republican opening the borders or Green Party, like you know, uh, reading a what you mean like Ronald Reagan be very different. Well, yeah, Reagan, right? I mean, in 2020. 2020. Well, I mean, Reagan, Ronald, the president who gave the most yeah, I know, it's, far-reaching it's not, it's amnesty not, ever is Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I know. It's not it's not 1986 anymore, though. I mean, I think our yeah. politics were maybe sure. you know, a little, little bit more. Yeah, I'm more just saying. Census based back then, too. Yeah. Anyway, so that I found amusing. Okay, so let's go to uh, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Hey guys, how are you doing? This, this are you in are you in Britain, Michael, right now, or are you? In, no, no, I'm back home now, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, that would be ludicrous it's for me to be morning away. here. It's yeah, morning yeah. <laughs> here. Actually, it's the day after their um, uh, a, a big holiday here, a public day. Hmm. Um, so yeah, what's the holiday? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not. Sure. It's, it's called Republic Day. I'm not sure of the specifics, but traffic was insane. I'm going to be going to. I, 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 I'm a PhD student in history, uh, Rich. Right. I don't know if you know that, but I'm going to be going to the archives today in, in West Bengal. I, I'm, I do research on British India, but um, in terms of what you guys are talking about, what is interesting to me is that one thing that I think you've talked about in the past, but not today so much, is that I think that the global South is um, is skept- including India is, is skeptical of the of the U.S. Uh, and Ukrainian cause, not because of some argument about NATO or whatever that people are talking about. I don't think I haven't heard much about that, but I think there's just a broader alienation from the West to some extent because of cultural reasons. <laughs> like, I mean, this the wokeness stuff we might think is just a silly meme, but I, I think there's genuine alienation from the global South on on, on this basis. And uh, just an alienation from America, more broadly American pretentiousness and so on. And I think that is leading uh, to a lot of kind of lukewarm uh, reactions to uh, the idea of supporting America, which, of course, I, I deplore because I'm very supportive of Ukraine. Unlike, um, I'm not sure what Richard's stance is, but Michael, you certainly have a kind of hardcore non-interventionist stance, which I, I certainly dispute but but i wonder what you think of that of that issue of of the uh, global south also like wealthy countries in the gulf and so on like the, the the hesitance to support the united states the way that was certainly the historical norm um well i'm not i'm not sure i, ha- I quite have a handle on what it is you're saying you perceive to exist and maybe you can explain better than i could because you happen to be in india i mean the whole t- term global south i find to be sort of odd and uh, sort of like a weird example of jargon, but leaving that aside, like when you say there's this festering cultural alienation that may be informing some of the skepticism or the reluctance to maybe join up whole hog with the cause of the U.S. in support of Ukraine, like what do you mean with more specificity? Like what are exactly are they alienated from? Is it just like the kind of you know, the, the notion of America as an actor on the world stage and just like the general sort of basket of cultural connotations that entails? Or like, is there something more precise that I'm not picking up on? I think the sense of, of first of all, the sense that we've become fairly radical culturally on issues like feminism or, or, or homosexuality or, or, or transgenderism. Not saying this is my position, but I think it's 
it's certainly a common position in the Arab world. And I think also uh, in India to some extent, uh, from what I'm saying, and also just a sense that we're, we've become very pretentious. Um, hmm. I mean, we've always had like a, a view that we, we are sort of the heir of the British Empire, we promote human rights. But I don't know, for some reason, I feel like that strikes the, uh, the, um, uh, the countries like India or um, countries in the Arab world, like, like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, Jordan, whatever, differently than it did in the past. So I, I just think that is this alienation of countries in the East, whatever we want to call them, on values issues from the West is, is having foreign policy consequences. Is this based on any observations you've made in India or any discussions you've, you've had or any kind of firsthand? Yeah. I mean, for India, it's much more anecdotal. I know a lot more people in the, in the Arab world. I I speak Arabic. I don't know much about India, but yeah, just watching television here, talking to educated Indians, like the, the, I've noticed a lot of hesitance about uh, supporting the war about our position on the war, like why? Because I'm asking, why isn't India like not in an aggressive way, obviously, but it's hopefully not. But but why has India? Why has Modi taken this kind of tepid stance and not wanting to condemn Russia, wanting to continue the relationship? And like uh, the 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 responses I get are first of all, like most commonly, frankly, isn't what I'm talking about. But is like we have enough problems, we can't take this on. Russia's a significant mm-hmm. country. But then another consistent answer I get is like, oh, the United States is interfering in the world. The United States is telling us to do this, et cetera. So it's like, it's not really like some deep commitment to the idea that Ukraine is doing something wrong or Russia is doing something wrong, but just like an alienation from the United States. Yeah, you know, I occasionally appear on this Indian TV channel, which is, I guess, more right-wing or seem to be more right-wing, Republic TV. I don't know why they have me on or invite me to go on, but you know, it's enjoyable and interesting enough. And it's like a madhouse. It's like nothing like America. Oh, I'd love to watch TV. that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can find clips of it, I guess. They have like oh, you know, yeah? 25 panelists on it at any given time and people are screaming over each other. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's sort of wild, but interesting enough for me to agree to do it. And I do notice that, you know, as far as I can ascertain from like what, I guess maybe more right of center Indian sentiment is, and I don't know how much this is reflective of the kind of broad expanse of Indian political opinion. Um, uh, but one thing that I sort of pick up on is that hesitancy or that reluctance to get on board with the American kind of project here vis a vis Ukraine has to do with this sense of um, wanting to maintain autonomy and not be like under the thumb of the U.S., like wanting to maintain like healthy independence or wanting to kind of maintain, it's almost, it reminds me of like Charles de Gaulle or something with regard to the U S you know, but um, you know, imported into different contexts, you know, with, you know, de Gaulle obviously being a skeptic of relinquishing France's uh, autonomy or, you know, uh, role in Europe to the, um, to the influence of, of the U S and, and, uh, in the UK, to some some degree, well, you know, where he he uh, withdrew from the command structure of NATO for a while in the '60s and, and what have you, I feel like I pick up on a certain sentiment there where <clears throat> um, it's, it's it's not so much. I mean, maybe that you also have these cultural issues tied in. I don't know, uh, but it's it's really more about just uh, maybe a um, finding tiresome these constant lectures and um, this constant hectoring by the U.S. for all countries of the world to just kind of get in lockstep with its latest, you know, military preoccupation, especially given in the not so recent past, in the recent past, um, 
those initiatives, you know, the military and foreign policy initiatives that the U.S. has undertaken and similarly hectored everyone to get in lockstep behind have not uh, turned out especially well. So I think that might contribute to it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to say, Richard? Or I, I mean, I don't. I, yeah. I mean, I just, some of the stuff was cut out. You guys were cutting out. Uh, but I think that there's, um, you know, I don't. I don't know if like there's much of a. I see evidence of much of a backlash to the West. You know, uh, angry Indians notwithstanding. I mean, they invited me on the show once too, and uh, uh, the time couldn't work, and then they never invited me again on so the Republic TV channel. channel? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mentioned actually. I, I was just sitting next to some guy, uh, some Indian guy, a guy from India at a um, Caltech like graduation thing, and uh, I mentioned like, oh, like he's like, what do you do? I'm like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I try to explain what I do. Um, yeah, what I'm do like, you do? Oh, you know, from, <laughs> I, I don't know. I try to explain. It. It's it's hard to explain. But I was mentioned because it was after it was, I, he was from India, so I'm like, oh, I got uh, I got invited. You know, I got invited on this. Ch- uh, channel called Republic TV, and he started laughing. He's like, "Oh, they're crazy." So, like, you know, my my uh, impression is some uh, of the couple Indians I've talked to that it's a crazy channel. But, anyways, I don't know if there's much of a backlash because it's like, you know, it's like they're. I don't know why we would expect them to like actually care about Russia or Ukraine or have like a strong opinion. It just seems like they don't care. They don't want to piss off the West. They want to trade with Russia when they can. Um, they just what they they just seem to be lacking sort of the. Uh, desire to sort of be part of this, you know, Western-led, you know, democratic, world-based international order, whatever Blinken, whatever Blinken calls it. So I don't know if there's that much of a backlash. To tie it to the cultural stuff, the wokeness, like, I don't know, maybe, like, I, but I don't know, it's probably, it's more... Well, if the stakes of the conflict care. are so existentially high, as we're constantly told, where, like, the fate of the rules-based international order and the entire yeah, they don't believe post-war that. balance of power and, like, our way of life itself... Is uh, yeah. on the line. Yeah, and they, they should that. buy. They, they should be interested, right? Matters for them yeah. either way. I just think though that there was thirty, forty years ago, if the United States told countries, let's say in, in, in the in the on the Arabian Peninsula, India, this is the shot, there would be much more compliance with much less uh, backlash than there has been skepticism. Well, even twenty years ago, I mean. I don't think the U.S. would have been defied on virtually anything after 9-11, including by India. I mean, post 9-11 is when the U.S. and India started forging more robust, like, bilateral military ties and we're doing drills and we're entering these commercial uh, relationships for, you know, provision of certain arms and stuff. Um, so it seemed like, you know, if, you, if we think back to, like, 2002 or something, it seems like India would be bending over backwards to placate the U.S. and, you know, to whatever extent it found feasible uh, signal support for its latest, you know, foreign policy uh, initiative. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't know. I just, the one big story, I think, is how countries in the Arabian Peninsula that are moneyed and important, especially Saudi Arabia, with, you know, housing the, the holy sites of Islam, have really, the relationship between these countries and the United States is like at an all-time low. And I just, I guess some of the things I'm hearing here very anecdotally, not knowing much about India, seem to kind of, there's kind of pale echoes of what I've certainly heard from people in the Gulf about alienation from the United States for values, reasons for the sense that we've become pretentious and and so on. Well, how about Israel? I mean, that to me might be the most amazing one. There was just a report within the past week or so about how the Biden administration was seeking to take 
some, I think, I think artillery out of a you know, supply facility that it maintains in Israel, which we didn't know existed, but I guess you could have assumed existed. Um, and uh, Netanyahu, who just recently retook power, uh, declined the request on the U.S.'s part. And if you want to attribute that to Netanyahu being antagonistic toward a Democratic president or something, that doesn't hold water because Netanyahu is carrying out what appears to be the exact same policy regarding Ukraine of his um, predecessor from, you know, the uh, rival party. Was it a, is, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now of the party, sorry, that, uh, that uh, just lost power when Netanyahu won the election. But in other words, it's a cross-party phenomenon to be adhering to this neutral status regarding Ukraine and Russia. And um, so, I mean, if the U.S. can't even get Israel to get in lockstep behind its foreign policy uh, orientation regarding this conflict, then who, who could it get? Still there, Matthew? All right, Matthew, I think you might have dropped out, unfortunately, um, because I don't hear you, and I don't know if it's my connection or yours. I think it's probably yours. But uh, either way, I'm going to go now to uh, Jenny. Matthew, come back if you'd like. So Biden has a new chief of staff. Oh, sounds exciting. Tell us about it. Did you guys notice that? Yeah, Jeff Zients, or Zients, is it? Yep. Obama's uh, Obamacare czar helped with the rollout of Obamacare, which I I did not remember that when I heard his name. But he made a ton of money in 2020 and was very involved in escalating the need for everybody to get vaccinated. So I thought it was an interesting (laughs) pick. Well, he he, 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 he ran, he was like the czar for the Biden administration's uh, vaccine sort of rollout program, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and he was, I think his background is in private equity, Bain Capital, if I'm not mistaken, which was supposed to like make Mitt Romney the most evil person on earth because he had a background in Bain Capital in, in 2012. So he was like this predatory, ruthless, capitalistic uh, vulture. Uh, but... You know, Democratic administrations just need to staff their administration with alum of the same private equity firm, and I guess it's okay, and nobody needs to worry that they're uh, being subject to the depredations of the uh, vulture capitalists anymore. One of the funniest things about his financial statements is that he has $5 million in gold bullion. So he's got all this gold. (laughs) And... Well, just in case there's a collapse or something, that's the the idea. Yeah, <laughs> not really. Him and Glenn, him and Glenn Beck. Economically. Yeah, he, he, him and Glenn Beck seem to have the same investment strategy. Yeah, it's just made me laugh. So I just wanted to comment on the Twitter situation. I think the best thing that Elon's doing is letting go of all of those crazy Twitter employees, and they were so pampered and entitled. It's obvious that the the company doesn't need them. And it's cutting out all that kind of toxic culture. And I'm excited to get my Twitter back. I thought the week after he bought it, I'd get it back like everybody else did. But I I still don't have mine back. So I've applied twice. Could I get this back? But I guess they've got a backlog or something. 
Yeah, you know, I'd like to just agree with you full stop, but I don't really know who else he's hiring now or like who's taking the jobs that are actually necessary at Twitter um, and in replacing whoever had been there before. I mean, I would need more information really to have a more well-developed understanding of whether I would like give my endorsement to that. Although, I mean, clearly when the layoffs first happened last fall, it did come out that there were people who held positions like, I don't know, human rights overseer of Twitter who uh, seemed like almost farcical examples of jobs for a social media company. If those have been eliminated, that's probably uh, just a good unto itself, given the pompousness and the uh, sort of, I don't know, imperiousness of those types of people who seek those types of jobs. Um, But in terms of the core functionalities of Twitter, like the stuff that's actually important, I simply don't know if there's been a positive change. Dr. Fauci's daughter, head of security. That was an interesting <laughs> find. Well, she had already been gone, right, when he when he, Musk took over. I I thought he let her go. I'm pretty I'm sure. Not... I, I'm pretty sure she left in 2021. I remember seeing that. But either way, I'm I mean, the point to stands. See the Fauci files. I I really am hopeful that when they come out, we'll get some clarity on who said what and why. I think the Twitter files have been amazing to read, and very helpful to understand why so many of us were deplatformed. And uh, it's my favorite site, so I'm excited to just get Well, back. yeah, I mean, clearly there was, a t- there was a period where Fauci could have blurted out anything and you'd have every social media company rush to instantly enact that in terms of some sort of content moderation policy. So, uh, yeah, he clearly wielded a great deal of power for some period of uh, time during the height of COVID. And it'll be interesting to see how, how much the... Uh, Social media officials sort of, uh, you know, catered to him or tried to just do his will without really much thought behind it. Yeah. So I put a link in the chat to a show I did the other day here on Colin. A guy from Moscow called in, Russian native, and we ended up talking for like an hour. And he hmm. reminded me, and I knew this, but he reminded me that so many people in Ukraine are family of Russians and vice versa and cousins and long histories together. He said, we don't want to nuke them. You know, it's madness. It's just madness. Right. To say that that that's the heart of the war. It's not. Well, I guess from your lips to God's ears, what about like, what about doing a demonstrative strike in the Black Sea or something? Anyway, that's speculative and sort of war war punditry that I don't. It was probably done by the Americans. I mean, do you honestly think the Russians blew up that pipeline? Um, I think if they did, then the uh, powers that be and like the security state uh, firmament would have been not at all bashful and leaking out copious information uh, showing that to be the case. And they, they haven't done it. In fact, they've recently begrudgingly done the opposite, telling the Washington Post that they don't have any evidence for it. So. Well, I got to tell you, Michael, I was on your Twitter and somebody was talking about the Danks and getting all crazy. And you posted a picture of a yawning sloth. And <laughs> it just made me laugh out loud. Well, I posted the picture up. of the yawning sloth because that guy <clears throat> who really seems emotionally unstable, I'm not even saying that to be uh, nasty to him or to, you know, just to, to uh, be you know, sort of funny about it. He does seem to be in need of 
professional help, um, you know, he was saying that he knows that I have this secret uh, crypto wallet that I'm getting deposits from some Russian oligarch for uh, for my services and providing them with, you know, in doing uh, propaganda on behalf of the Russian state, which I told the guy, can you please forward me that crypto wallet information because I would like to collect my earnings for the first time. Anyway, he's some guy from, I don't know, Estonia. He claims that he had, has been on the front lines as a, some sort of journalist in Ukraine, and his uh, his brain doesn't seem particularly uh, well-oiled uh, at the moment, and he was kind of just... I mean, the guy, the guy, if you want to look it up, if you're curious, I mean, the guy's saying he's going to come to New Jersey and kick my ass, like, just outright. He deleted the tweet. So oh, did he? Okay. Either it was a bot and it just, you know, self-destructed or he's a real guy. I don't know. I think it's, it's, a, no, it's so a real guy. Funny. Oh, well, it, I thought you handled it pretty well. I like to use humor to deflect <laughs> yeah. myself, well, so I appreciate it in someone else. It's because I'm so crippled inside that I have to resort to humor as like a coping mechanism. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Hey, uh, Gator. What's up? Hey, Michael. How you doing? Um, okay. I'm, I'm just sort of w- w- would like to sort of spitball where I'm kind of getting to on the war at the moment um, and mm-hmm. see, see what you guys think. Um, in terms of nuclear rhetoric, I think it's absolutely essential you can't expect the nuclear any nuclear nation to have what they would consider to be an effective nuclear deterrent if, under the present circumstances, all of them were un- or any of them were unwilling to essentially threaten potential use of it. Otherwise, you don't have a deterrent, right? And um, although Russia's politi- political statement position is we will never fire first, provided their dead hand system does really work the way it's reputed to work they never need to fire first because it's it's mechanistic capability is the ensures the annihilation of the entire world well when when you say they will never fire i mean is is that actually what is stated in their doctrine i mean i know people always reference what their nuclear doctrine supposedly is i haven't read the full document but i thought they reserve the right, at least publicly, in terms of whatever their doctrinal uh, declaration yeah, so, is, so, to, to use them first in the event that the kind of existential threat existential threat is uh, facing the the state. Yeah, but but they've also issued statements recently saying we're not going to fire nuclear weapons first. So it's kind of well, I you mean, know, it's, it's just obviously the ambiguities in what's judging yeah. judged to be an existential threat, and people like. Rich Sorry to go there, but I remember being uh, I remember being treated to a bevy of statements from Russian government officials of various stripes saying that under no circumstances will there be an invasion of Ukraine. Um, so yeah, grain of salt. Yeah, but I mean, but you, but you know that's but that's the game, isn't it? This is the the rhetoric game is everything, isn't it? Because what are you trying to do? You're basically trying to say no, no, no. We're not going to invade you. Right. Because because you don't want to you don't because that's that's at that stage, there was one other option. And then eventually you're going, we are going to invade you if you don't sign this document or at least talk about the stuff. And then now you've said that you kind of have to invade them. Right. (laughs) Because 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 they haven't done what you want. And then you and then and then and then you adapt and roll with basically how that then progresses. Right. But but when it comes to like the nuclear side of things. 
both sides. And just really quickly, this is why I still have this lingering um, doubt, or at least my view remains in flux about the actual sequence of events prior to the launching of the invasion in February of last year. And Richard and I have been over this very t- uh, many times. But, you know, I just get annoyed when the U.S. is touted as having been totally right in prophesying the invasion as though the U.S. was not playing any role in creating the conditions where an invasion mm. may or may not happen. So, you know, it got to a point where because the U.S. had, you know, been doing this leaking and making these statements of fact about what Russia's intent was, that if Russia there then did not invade, it would have been, would have been seen as like a capitulation to the U.S. So, I don't know, I'm just, uh, the jury's still out on that for me in terms of like what to really think about it. But I mean, even Zelensky at that point was actually literally saying, no, we there is no Russian buildup on our borders. We have no intelligence to that. Effect. Zelensky was saying that the hysteria being downplay that. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I exactly. watched the press conference and I yeah. think it was early February. Zelensky so was, was saying that the hysteria being fomented around predictions of war was more harmful to Ukraine than any potential actual invasion. Yes, yeah, so he was That's out was with the U.S. message, wasn't he, at that point, trying to sort of either get find his own feet and find his own position and stop what he thought might be a growing panic in his populace versus the, the U.S. actually fermenting war by saying, no, they're going to invade, they're going to invade, they're going to invade, whilst denying any possibility of talks. So, you know, and then eventually... Zelensky was brought on board with the program when Britain turned up and said, "No, you, you, you're not. You're not going to negotiate your way out of this." It is, is essentially the current thinking. But one of the things about this nuclear rhetoric thing, which Ritter's kind of not not gotten right, and you know, I don't believe everything. I don't believe Scott Ritter knows everything. He's he's not. He's not. He's he's trajectory wise. He's generally on board, but he's quite outlandish in terms of some of his fervency. And I think he was pointing out, I'm just trying to remember this now because I've kind of half forgotten this, but um, oh, I've forgotten now, I'll come back to me. But anyway, my, my bigger point is this. On the nuclear side, I literally don't give a shit because if, if nuclear war happens, it will be accidental. N- nobody really thinks that they can fire an, a, a nuclear weapon where the minimum size warhead we now carry is at least five times bigger than anything dropped on her, on Japan, right? So, so anyone sets one of those off, the, there's multiple countries involved in the fallout, and if that goes into Russia's or the US's territory, retaliation will occur. Right? I just don't see how you could say that with any degree of certainty at all. We have a, in terms of nuclear use, we have a grand total of one in the sample size from which to draw on for precedence. And that was yeah. an intentional use. I know you're saying that the nuclear, uh, typical u- nuclear <coughs> bomb uh, today is many um, multiples more, like, uh, st- uh, yeah. more devastating. But even so, like, I don't know. I and mean, you, you, you and I, neither of us can imagine every potential scenario in which it could be contemplated to use a nuclear weapon. So, I mean, I get the logic that you're, articulating there, but I just don't have anywhere near enough confidence to just assume that that's going to hold in every potential scenario that might come back. Yeah, I think that's fair. But my point is that I don't, I mean, 
I, I literally don't give a shit about this because I know that I and no other citizen really actually effectively influences policies which would determine uh, a fire or response basis, right? And also, in history, every uh, near miss, bar possibly one that's in the public domain, was purely technically accidental, right? Um, it was either people mistaking radar returns for or 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 tactical exercise movements that kind of triggered them, which they were then were then stood down with phone calls or correct interpretation subsequently through the firing command chain, or there was um, a B fifty two flying over Colorado that literally broke up in the air, and there was one switch or wire which was the difference between the nuke it was carrying going off or just crashing to the ground inert. But then, and then the only one case that I can think of is the one in the Cuban Missile Crisis where a Russian diesel sub um, had false fire orders from its commander who got paranoid and wound up. And then the last guy, the last XO in the chain of command, literally interrupted off shift, caught, broke it all up, and then basically was brigged and then ended up being a Russian hero, right? So, so basically, if it happens... Right. None of us control this. There are no people in the world shitting themselves enough to march against their own governments to de-escalate. Who's who's campaigning to their Congress people? No one. Right. If that's how dumb the human race is at 90 seconds to midnight, yeah. then A, there's no point in shitting yourself. And B, the human race is fucking dumb. Well, that's why this week I did think it was worth calling attention to the small but not non-existent um, kind of faction of political players in Germany who actually are against the escalation that was just authorized by Schultz with the tanks and everything. Because, you know, it is a left-right coalition. I mean, it's not a formal coalition or anything, but you do see the... Um, the uh, AFD, which is the right-wing party, and then the uh, left, which is the uh, more thorough-going left-wing party, and including a few prominent individuals that are not affiliated with either party but are on the same sort of uh, wavelength, you know, causing something of a stir, actually at least saying, saying something, like taking some action, registering some complaints, doing something rather than what happens in the U.S., which is that everybody's just totally inert except for a handful of posturing Republicans who will now and then send a tweet saying that they're against the appropriations for Ukraine, but really aren't doing anything. I mean, the Republicans now control the House of Representatives. <clears throat> Biden just announced yet another unilateral action using his presidential authority. It's you know, unchecked to um, send the main battle tank in the U.S. Army's uh, arsenal to a hot war zone without really any accompanying detail about how that's going to be implemented practically or, yeah. or operationally. And the, what, what is Congress doing? I mean, they're fighting against, you know, they're probably going to get now bogged down in another, like, iteration of their uh, gas stove culture war nonsense. So, <laughs> but, but, but the, I mean, if you listen to sort of Brian Balletic or McGregor or Ritter pointing out the Patriot side of things or the the escalation through tanks and even jets, it, none of it makes sense because you're putting one Patriot system in, which needs 90 people to man it, 
on a shift basis, right? Or, or, or on a complete basis. So you'd need more than 90 people if they're a rotating shift. And that takes six months to get to basic operation, not competent operation. And that's only just starting this month. Then the Patriot, one Patriot on a thousand kilometer long front is irrelevant. And that's and yet and yet nobody's raising an eyebrow about about what that means in the in the mainstream press. They're just going, yeah, we're sending a Patriot missile to a field that, that's the largest field in Europe. Right? Yeah, I mean, okay. I keep hearing from people who who have experience, who are American military veterans, who in one way or another have direct or indirect experience with the uh, Abrams tank systems, who are gobsmacked at the idea that they could be used without any American personnel providing yeah. some sort of at least supporting role or even a potentially a direct sort of operational role in that, like they'll actually be on the ground. Um, so I don't know what to make of that uh, exactly. I think their suspicions are probably at least well-founded. Um, but, you know, a functioning uh, sec- first branch of government, which is, you know, Congress at least has... The order of con- the, uh, the order of significance in the Constitution uh, outlines it. You know, you think might want to hold a hearing or two about yeah. uh, that particular issue, but I don't know. I don't see anything. Um, just, just you know, just to get Kevin McCarthy's but, more interested in like you know entitlement reform and stuff. I mean, it's just absurd. Well, just to run my a final sort of like summation point of where I'm at now with this by you. I, I believe that um, but basically if you take the superficial rhetoric between the two sides and you accept that superficially Russia is against the West, right, in terms of all of its public statements are, are, are roughly hold water, then negotiation um, where negotiations that are born out of a mutual stand down are now well impossible. You know, Russia said no. Zelensky's being told to say no, and everybody hates each other. And I believe that really what has to happen now in order to make progress globally is that Russia needs to continue to properly embrace full-on, all-out war, because that would be the acceptance that we've been fucked by the West, nobody in the West is trustworthy, look at what they're doing, Um, we've got to go full tilt. And in doing so, they, if if Russia is militarily going to win this, they need to win win and just do it at the pace they want to do it at, whether that's fast or slow. Absolutely annihilate Ukraine and then basically put turn around and say, "See, we weren't bluffing. Nobody fucks with us. Back the fuck off, and uh, and we'll now negotiate on our terms. You will do what we want, and we will show you." that we're not imperialist, we're not taking over Poland, we're not doing any of this other shit, we're doing exactly what we said we were doing. And therefore, you now must accept that we're not, we we have some integrity uh, in terms of what we've stated we were going to do and why, and also that um, the balance of power is changing. And if, 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 if I think that has to happen now in order for the Western populace to be able to see that and and use it as um, a reference point against which to judge the bullshit inside their own mainstream media for once and for all, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you know, um, I actually listened to Douglas McGregor on a uh, on a stream 
from a few days ago, and I hadn't heard from him in a while. And you know, he's one of these people that I kind of uh, can appreciate the insights of now and then, but sometimes I just build up a, a bit of maybe not even totally rational skepticism about their sort of logistical or about like their claimed knowledge of tactical developments. Um, but I do have to say that he actually did give a impressive fact-based um, sort of account of the current battlefield situation in, in Ukraine and what he sees happening in the sh- you know, medium to long term. And it's very much consistent with that scenario, which is not the most, uh, you know, inviting one or the most uh, warm hearted one. It doesn't, it doesn't warm my heart to hear that expressed as the like, likeliest scenario because that's, you know, total war and that's going to probably result in a lot of suffering and death and destruction. But um, yeah, I do recommend taking a look at Douglas McGregor's uh, conversation with this person named Glenn Dyson. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's from the 24th of uh, January. So, yeah. Is, is, is that, is that, is your reaction to McGregor's position or this, this possibility of Russia doing war properly? Is that because we have been normalized as Western citizens to not believe that war is about winning it? Right? I mean, literally, we don't win wars, do we? We, we've been, we win the business of war, but we don't mm-hmm. win war. And that's a big difference. Or we don't even view war as something that's conceptually winnable anymore by like easily identifiable criteria. Right when when it you know when George W. Bush says stay the course, he never set out like the exact criteria by which it could be determined that the Iraq War had been quote won. It's always like this amalgamation of vague sort of cliches and uh, ad hoc you know rationales that are made up on the fly. Um, but, whereas but you know turned up on an aircraft yeah. carrier like after yeah. three days with a big sign saying mission accomplished and a birthday yeah, cake. And gave a like, thumbs up. Are you fucking kidding. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Russia, Russian officials have been fairly consistent and clear about what their stated objectives are that must be achieved in order for the war to, ha- to be considered one. You know, demilitarization uh, of Ukraine and whatnot. I guess there, I guess there may be some ambiguities there and sometimes maybe you can detect a slight variance in which... Um, Objectives are emphasized over others, but you know, more or less, it's been been consistent. So, um, yeah, but, but McGregor, he just had what seems like a empirical, implausible analysis, and he says that you know Russia seems very much poised to have as one of their uh, missions in the somewhat near future to to cut off uh, supply lines from from the West from from Poland. Um, not go into Poland or not make an incursion to Poland, but, you know, actually occupy, I guess, yeah. Western Ukraine, which not a lot of people had thought was that conceivable of a scenario. But if, the, if it actually is trending towards something like total war, then uh, you would see why that would be on the menu. Yeah, I, I, just, I just think it needs to be resolved with pure military terms now to show that actually... It was. It is. It is 
it is a war and it does end when the when one person might is right ultimately because that underpins that if, if it happens in those terms to the point where it's undeniable to the west and the propaganda can't paste over those cracks then that underpins the rebalance of the balance of power in the world and, and off the back of that you get things like the forcing of the un to reconsider what whether rules-based order exists or law-based order exists and they are fundamental for the world going forwards i think well yeah uh Seems a tad ominous to me, but we'll have to see. Thanks, thanks, yeah. Peter. Yeah. Cheers, Michael. All right, and uh, last but not least, Andrew 1.0. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hey. Uh, yeah, this is total war for Russia, probably, but I don't think it's total war for the U.S. or the West, right? Because and also bear in mind, it's total war for Ukraine. I mean, they still war have martial law. They don't adhere to the norms of liberal democratic governments. Governance right now, as far as we could tell. I mean, they remember they uh, basically neutered uh, trade unions. Um, Zelensky's controlling the media through, you, you know, executive decree and yeah. what have you. So, um, yeah, total yeah. war there as well, it seems. Yeah, those values are not reflected in the way they fight the war, but that's uh, could be said of most wars, I'm sure, at least the values that society ostensibly has. Anyway, I just think it's interesting the. The article that you read, I was going to ask from the New York Times, did it happen to be the one that is... Hold on a sec. Which one? How Biden uh, How Biden reluctantly agrees yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks to Ukraine. And that one? Okay. Yeah, the couple of the points I thought were interesting were that he said it was a political maneuver and not a military maneuver. Or the, that, that was kind of implied in the article that it was, there was a feud between the... Pentagon, who didn't see the military or logistical practicality of it, and then the political administration that wanted to just say they were doing it because there's a fracture in NATO. I mean, that's the heart of the article to me. The news Mm -hmm. is uh, uh, the tanks, right? But the real news is that this is political because (laughs) – and the other thing that really reinforces this point is that the other part of the feud was apparently how many to send, correct? Mm-hmm. And the Biden administration, they didn't, I don't believe, explicitly say how many they wanted to send. But I would assume they wanted to send one. You know, they Schultz said it would take one. And whatever the number was, the Pentagon told them, no, that's really stupid. We're going to send them <coughs> most, uh, a battalion worth. We're going to send them 31 so at least we can justify Well, it. a Pentagon official anonymously told, one of, I think it was Politico months ago, that even sending a one tank as a symbolic gesture that could then entice Germany to authorize the Leopard tanks wouldn't be feasible because even one tank would have to be operated. It couldn't be operated by Ukrainians alone. It would have to involve like a large or relatively large, you know, uh, involvement of American U S military personnel, which um, was not seen as something that was tenable. Yeah, and that wasn't mentioned in so, the article. And now they're article. sending apparently 31, because 31 is the average number of tanks in a Ukrainian tank battalion or something. I don't know. That's right. what that so that's what the dope John Kirby stated. said. So, Yeah, and then, you know, who knows if that's true. I don't know. I assume that's at least the reason. That, that guy I find so annoying now. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. The, John uh, Kirby, of he's course. Not the yeah. yeah, 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 because... Yeah, it, <laughs> I, when, I was in, when I was in... 
Poland on the border with Ukraine, and he just said flatly as a statement of fact that no Americans had been affected by that attack, that by that Russian missile strike on the Yavoriv uh, training facility. Remember that in um, yeah. March? Yeah, yeah. And I had just gotten, I had just met an American who said he was injured in the attack. Um, <laughs> well, uh, it kind so of turned me off to John Kirby as a uh, reliable source of information. I guess he didn't report to John Kirby that he was injured, right? No, I mean, the guy was, I I think the guy actually was like a freelance sort of one of these mercenary types. But still, I mean, Kirby made a blanket statement of fact that is contradicted by evidence that I personally had been able to acquire. So, Even if it wasn't in the strike, I remember way long ago sharing an article with you about some mysterious United States citizen who apparently was a construction worker who... Yeah, 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 from Seth Harp, right? And that was, yeah, it was. It might have been Seth Harp, but I found his obituary and I sent it to you. And yeah, 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 you did. Yeah, that was good. And well, I mean, of course, Americans were dying in Ukraine. (laughs) So why does it matter if they're blown up in a training facility like Kirby? I mean, what is the media doing? You know what I mean? This is in an obituary. Well, did you see the thing recently? I tweeted it where you know it was first it was Time Magazine and then Rolling Stone through this uh, military affairs reporter that they just used on a freelance basis, that there was a for, like what they're calling a former American uh, special operator slash Navy SEAL who apparently had gone AWOL or was a deserter right. and was also had a, also had a warrant out, his, out for his arrest as of 2019 and somehow when it was able to make his way to Ukraine on the front lines – not even in like a supporting role, but like he was like apparently on the vanguard of the fighting force for the Ukraine military in Bakhmut and uh, dies. And then if you read the Rolling Stone little item that uh, reports on this, they say that they were informing this military affairs reporter who got poached for this one little special project by Rolling Stone, informed of the death by an anonymous American intelligence official. Huh? Why does he? I mean. What's he, what, Maybe I should take all that at face value, and there's nothing more to it. But they leave no, a lot that, of ambiguity and stuff open to uh, open to speculation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just that there's no one asking serious questions in the press. I mean, that's the honest issue, in my opinion. You can't expect the government to. I mean, what, they don't even have to try, right? Because they're not getting asked serious questions. They're just not, and. The number of tanks being so small and getting there in so long, I mean, it's going to be at least months, if not a year. It could be a year, depending on how quick they train them. And by the way, the shorter the time they train them, the worse, because that just means that they're undertrained, which is actually bad. Brian Berletic brought up a great point about the losses in the Iraq uh, Desert Storm. It was like 3,000 Iraqi tanks got knocked out and America lost zero. But the guy that was talking about this was saying that if you swapped the people in the tanks that it would be the other way around because the training is so much more important than just what you're using. So if they're trained quickly, it's just going to hurt them. So the, 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 the overall point is they might bring in jets, they might bring in F-16s, but did Ukraine have jets before Russia invaded? Yes. Did they have tanks before Russia invaded? Yes. Even if they weren't as shiny and new, did they have high Mars? No. And actually, we already gave them that. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could quote unquote give them, but the level and the scale isn't there. And they're saying themselves it's going to take years to build up the military industrial capacity. These companies like that make this stuff are saying it's going to take two years before we can scale up 
to amounts that don't even, again, meet what Ukraine is asking for. And this is stuff that's just publicly available information. And, you know, no one's asking the administration, why are you saying that you're committed to helping Ukraine when the numbers are so clearly insufficient? It, they're just kind of they pressure them in a way, but they don't they don't ask them real. Like, obviously, that would be. No, they ask them questions geared at trying to elicit from them commitments for even more extensive deployment of arms. I mean, they, they try to get them to um, the, the, the premise of the questions that are asked are very commonly uh, hawkish ones insofar as they're all about trying to get them to be even more fulsome in the support that they're giving to Ukraine. They'll ask them, like, so why are you sending only this amount but not that amount? It's not because they're actually trying to, you know, journalistically probe the validity of the logic that's being right. used. It's right. because they want to basically coerce them into getting more and more deeply involved because they have this, like, ingrained pro-war bias. Like, I remember the, the best example of this was when that, I think it was a woman from ABC at this emergency uh, meeting of uh, NATO that happened in March that I happened to be in Brussels for. Um, she asked Biden, have you been too, have, have you been too like constrained or have you limited yourself too much by claiming that you're worried about World War III? Like, or, or, or like, should you, shouldn't you be less cavalier about trying to forestall World War III? That was her question. I mean, I put it in a different way, but that was like the thrust of the question. Yeah, and that's yeah. the sort of the mentality that so many of these reporters who are in a position where they can get access to ask a question of like a John Kirby or whomever. That's sort of like the um, that's the sort of it's a framing logical framework they're yeah. working within. Yeah, it, it's weird to me that there aren't more people that are seriously in, you know, it, it, maybe in the Ukrainian-American community, someone that's more interested in seeing Ukraine actually win, like someone that cares about reality, like an adult in the room with the lights on in their fucking head that can see reality. You know what I mean? That, right. Because it's all just posturing, like you said. It's posturing and framing so they can allow the next step. But the next step, to what? To what? To, okay, now next package has jets. Oh, and we all celebrate and do a circle jerk because we're happy, we're so brave, and we're giving Ukraine jets. And ultimately, it's let's say it's like, you know, a what fifty jets across all of Europe and, and America, like, and in like a year, and we're going to call this a major. Are we planning for like a five year war? Are we going to shift into a war economy? Like, I'm not saying the United States doesn't have an ability to extend its. Uh, industrial capacity and stuff, but like... Which it's doing. Talking, I mean, so they are planning yeah. for a long-term war. That's what they're doing. And they fold Taiwan into that. Um, you know, the New York Times had another article this week where they're saying that the Pentagon now has enacted a plan to increase artillery production by, I think it was 500% or something, but it's over two years. Um, so yeah, I mean, these are, these are long-term And there's no guarantee will last. And, and I mentioned that, that, that joint command that has just been established as of, they said early 2023, it was announced in November, but it yeah. seems to probably should be up and running now. I mean, that's, that was pr uh, stated explicitly as a reflection of the, you know, permanent or, you know, at least long-term, uh, commitment that the U.S. is making to this particular war. So they 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 right. are looking at things with from a from a broader view uh, in terms it's of the timeline here. 
It can't just right. be Ukraine because there's no guarantee that Ukraine's going to hold out for two years. Who's what, what law of the universe dictates that exactly? I don't understand. Yeah. And so you're right. It's about a larger thing. And even if uh, Ukraine collapses, they can just shift it right to Taiwan and say, well, look, we have to be prepared for this. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And I don't know. It's just the, the whole thing is such a charade. And it, it's, a, it's kind of maddening to me that it seems no one really cares about Ukraine. There are so few people seem to have a genuine interest in winning the war, actually, like, or, or, or not even winning the war, but ending the war, really, because you can't win the war at this point with as Ukraine. I, I just don't think it's possible. I know that's probably contradictory to all of the establishment opinion and the allowed opinion. And I can't, you know, ever <laughs> express that without being seen as like a Russian bot. But that's probably true, in my opinion. Right. So the, pe- the, 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 pe- the people who are, you know, right minded citizens and who are on board with the project of like defending liberal democracy and the rules based international order and the sovereignty of Ukraine, what are they advocating? Well, they're 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 advocating for basically the ceding of Ukraine's sovereignty to the United States, which for all intents and purposes has assumed control over the sovereign affairs of Ukraine yeah, for most right. You know, meaning you know, significant practical, practical. purposes, <laughs> and also <clears throat> they're in favor of not just continuing but expanding the current warfare policy, which we're told, at least based on what was reported by Der Spiegel, which had gotten information from the German intelligence services, at least triple-digit killed in action on Ukraine's part, not only overall casualties, but at least a hundred plus killed each day in terms of the Ukraine soldiers. Um, thanks to, as a function of the current policy. So that's the policy that the people who are so flamboyantly pro-Ukraine are dead set on maintaining indefinitely, whereas anybody who might wonder about other options that you know could reduce the scale of the death and suffering, they're anti-Ukraine and they are enemies of all that is good in the world. So, right. Well, I don't here, know. Here's a question. Who are the people who don't want NATO to go in directly anti-Ukraine? Because, you know, if there were really people that were pro-Ukrainian, that's the next, if they wanted to really change things, that's the, the step they take. And it's not like secret, you know, fake mercenary ex-NATO operators of tanks. I mean, like actually NATO into Ukraine. And well, if, I've had that thought, thought myself. Like if you actually believe yeah, why aren't they? What all you're saying are the existential civilizational stakes of the conflict. I mean, Lindsey Graham just said that if Putin isn't defeated in Ukraine, that means that the entire post war order collapses and that, uh, you know, you, uh, Putin will uh, basically become the world's tyrant. Right. So if you actually believe that, I mean, if you believe, if you're if you're saying it's a genocide that's ongoing as we speak, and on and on and on, every example of this most sort of uh, overwrought rhetoric, then and yet you're also simultaneously, you know, maintaining that we have to abide by this really, if you think about it, arbitrary restriction right. on not doing boots on the ground or not having direct NATO intervention. Right. Well, well right. why not? Right. I mean, so you'd rather have Hitler 2.0 taking over the world than send, you know, a squadron of, you know, NATO troops into Ukraine physically. That doesn't, it's, you know, it's, that doesn't make sense. It's a big bluff. It's a big yeah. bluff. 
that's the thing, and no one's willing to call the bluff. And Lindsey Graham's running around calling for boots on the ground. I know Lindsey wants to see boots. He always wants to see boots. But I'd like to wind it down a little bit, if you don't mind, by just asking you, unless you had more thoughts. I know. No, no, I'm good. Uh, have you heard that Disney's going to have to take down Splash Mountain because it's racist? <laughs> no, I haven't. Well, Are they really? Problem. Disney World, right? I've been on Splash Mountain a few times in my day. Well, do you know the song or anything about it? Can they take down the character? entire theme park? Well, I was thinking we might petition. Because whenever I think of Disney World, I mean, I haven't been there in years, but I always think of having to spend, like, just a ridiculous amount of time waiting online in the blistering sun. Right, yeah. Like, I don't think of, like, the joyous memories or, like, you oh, know, okay. the, the, the good stuff. I think of just waiting online forever. That's definitely the way you spend most of your time doing. But, you know, I think you're supposed to have, like, the thrilling part with all the colors and the sounds ingrained into your mind. That's the idea. You're supposed Not to go the- around with your autograph book and get autographs from all the characters in their costumes. That's what yeah. I did when I first went when I was, like, I don't know, five or something. Well, do you, you know, maybe DeSantis should have the National Guard go in and make sure there's nothing else racist there because maybe are they really doing that be... what's the what's the claim like what is what is racist well, about Splash it, it, apparently it's based off of a song or has characters from a song from a, or the oh movie yeah called a song song in yeah the it's like some southern dixie song isn't it it's song in the south is apparently a disney movie that was yeah, yeah okay song of the south yeah yeah i know song i know um i know that the movie okay well the movie the movie still has it's the only disney movie that they've never released in any form um, okay. And like in any of their like subsequent sort of services that they have, like it's uh, you have to get bootlegs of it to, to see it. Yeah, right. It's like a romanticization of the, um, uh, you know, I don't know the uh, romanticization of the slavery era South without right. being sensitive enough to the fact that blacks were enslaved at the time. <laughs> right. It's like an idealized version of the South where slavery they just ignore it like it never happened. It's like Disneyfied South. Basically they Disneyfied yeah. the South like they Disneyfy every topic with like the Disney thing they did. But it's offensive to do that now. And but no one like how many black kids on this ride ever knew about this? How many black people ever complained about this? I seriously doubt I guarantee you it's white liberal academics that came up with this. Who knew? <laughs> I mean who knew that this <laughs> who had an issue with this it's just so it's so funny and i think it's yeah. what actually maybe someone an executive wanted to just get rid of it and change the ride and came up with the excuse i don't know if there was like a pr campaign or what but apparently whatever happened it was bad did anyone was actually com- did, did anyone who actually rode the ride whether black it's, or not whatever it's unclear to actually me. make like in the moment notice that there was something <laughs> racist happening and complain about I, it and want want it to be done cuz it's all about I'm reminded now because I have been on it. I forget the actual song, but it, it's all about like the Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear. Right. I mean, I think they're the yeah. main characters. Br'er it's Rabbit. not like there aren't any humans in it. It's just, uh, you know, vaguely <laughs> derivative of like the uh, landscape and the sort of character theme of the movie. You could have possibly have been on the ride and have been offended by the ride without having this vast background knowledge first well the ride's Literally. actually closed now that i'm looking it up it closed <laughs> on the 23rd right. of january well, so the, luckily the threat has been ended but i'm thinking that what first there should probably be a congressional investigation into what other racism is at disney and it, i would support also DeSantis just using the national guard to close the park until that's done because this is clearly a threat to our children that they're uh 
being harmed by racism. And it was right under our nose this whole time, you know. So what else could be in there? We don't know. But yeah, we shut it down until we can figure out what the hell shut is going down. on. I think that's what Trump said about the border. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Shut it yeah. down. Well, thank you for informing me of this news. I'll have to maybe hold a memorial or uh, reflect on my past experiences in, in remembrance of, yeah. of the ride, which thankfully now has been put out of action so uh, everybody is yeah. safe and not going to be exposed to any more troubling uh, briar rabbits. So. Just be careful not to have any anti-racist thought or racist thoughts in those in those memories. Okay, I'll, do, I'll do my 